Welcome to All Students of Stanford Unite, the official podcast of the Associated Students of Stanford University and Stanford Student Enterprises. I'm your host, Cricket Beidelman. Today's guests are Professors Rob Reich and Maron Sahami. Rob Reich is a political science professor and the director of the Center for Ethics and Society at Stanford. Maron Sahami is a computer science professor and the associate chair of education in the Department of Computer Science. Thank you so much for joining today. This is Rob here. I am a political philosopher who teaches in the political science department, and I have become interested in the past five or six years in questions at the intersection of ethics and technology. Initially, because I witnessed, as a professor at Stanford, the great migration of undergraduate students over to the engineering quad to major in record numbers in computer science. When I discovered that the person who taught the CS106A introductory class was said to be a legendary teacher, an incredible instructor, and learned it was Mehran Sahami, he and I began having conversations in general about Stanford and then about the course that we have now developed. And that's what led to this collaboration a number of years ago. And I'm Maren Sami. I'm a professor in the computer science department and teach, you know, our intro classes, among other things. Actually, I'd heard a lot about the classes that Rob had taught and actually from some of my TAs had heard about talks that he had given and they'd always raved about what an amazing instructor he was and how he got students to really think deeply about issues. When I heard from him about potentially teaching together and doing a course on technology and ethics, it seemed like it was a pretty amazing opportunity. So it's been a wonderful experience to be able to work together on this along with our colleague Jeremy Weinstein who couldn't be here. Recently, Twitter had used its power to ban the former president and a couple of other alt-right conservative radio hosts from Twitter on the grounds that they were inciting violence. Without getting into the politics behind it, this does kind of set a precedent for private technology companies to ban accounts that spread disinformation or incite violence. I think most people can agree that inciting violence should not be legal on social media platforms and that it's very fair for companies to ban them in that context. However, I wanted to ask both of you, do you think it's ethical for those private technology companies to ban people who spread disinformation? Because this also sets a precedent of impeding free speech. The questions wouldn't be as interesting if they were simple. These are genuinely hard questions. And I would begin an answer from the following foundation. The United States has the First Amendment, which is a very strong commitment to freedom of speech and that blocks at a constitutional level the government from acting as an arbiter of permissible and impermissible speech. Twitter, Facebook, the social media companies are all private companies. They're not government agencies. So strictly speaking, the First Amendment doesn't apply to them. However, it's appropriate to say that we would wish to live in a society which has a culture of free expression. And that means that certain norms of expression should also be present even within private companies or private entities. Stanford University um, is a private, a private entity as well. And that's what gives rise to the difficulty of this question. As you said, Cricket, when instances of speech can lead to real world or offline harms and violence, that's not even under the First Amendment a protected category of speech. So that's a relatively easier call, but even there it's difficult to say because you have to um, interpret incitements to violence within the context in which the speech is happening. And it's the context that Twitter pointed to 
for then President Trump's speech on January 6th because of what was going on in the world and his role in trying to communicate to his supporters seeking to overturn a fairly held election. Finally, you asked about disinformation. So you could apply a similar type of evidentiary standard, namely look for cases in which online disinformation causally can be said to lead to offline harms or violence or real world interferences with people's well-being. And that might provide you a justification for um, limiting that. And it's a difficult question sometimes to ask what can constitutes a harm. Can someone's online skepticism about the effectiveness, say, of the COVID vaccine lead to people believing that the vaccines are not effective and therefore not vaccinating themselves and therefore being harmed by COVID? That's not an impossible case to make, but do we want to make it more difficult for people to express their sincerely held concerns that um, through deliberation might actually come to a better answer? These are all very difficult questions and they're at the heart of what we will discuss in this class when we, when we talk about the power of private platforms. And I think to add to that, I think Rob framed it really well. And in terms of your question, you know, in terms of what is ethical, I think sometimes we think about what is ethical and what is legal. There is a difference, though, sometimes between those cases in the sense that at one level, legal norms are oftentimes a way we try to codify ethics through a political process. But in the United States, for example, there's a much more permissive notion of what speech should be allowed under the doctrine of free speech than there are, for example, in many European countries, Germany being a prime example with respect to Nazi materials and speech uh, being banned there. One of the things to think about there is you know, how you draw that line. There is the notion of incitement of violence. But I think at an ethical level, there is also a responsibility for the tech platforms to try to maintain an information space that is free from intentional pollution. And so one could think about a verifiable fact. That's something we'd certainly want to allow. There's opinions. That's also something we'd want to allow. At some point, you need to determine where's the line between that and intentional misinformation to try to pollute the information space. And once you cross that line, that's the place I think there really is an ethical obligation for the platforms to try to ensure that the information that's being spread through them is something that is not intended to misinform the public. There's also an interesting question, maybe, maybe we might want to chat more about this at some point, which is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is what obligation do these platforms actually have with respect to liability for the information that's posted on them. And CDA 230 basically immunizes them from liability. And it's interesting because some of the same people who are known for posting misinformation on these platforms are the same people who are calling for repeal of CDA 230. So there's kind of an interesting paradox there that we might want to explore later. Recently, NPR published an article about the Stanford vaccine algorithm, which used data to figure out who in the med school should be given one out of 5,000 doses of the vaccine. And only five of those doses were given to the medical residents who sometimes do more of the in-person work with the patients before they see the doctors. That is a pretty grave mistake. And it was later admitted that someone had seen the algorithm results well before they were implemented. So Stanford apologized. My question with that is, should people be responsible for checking biases in algorithms? And 
should this measure be mandated? The first thing I'd want to say about this is that blaming the algorithm is a form of mystifying the process. It's humans who create the algorithm. And if the algorithm generated an output that people were dissatisfied with, the problem is not that the algorithm gave the output it did, but rather that it was programmed or the model um, produced the output that it did. So we should always try to attribute responsibility to the humans rather than to some obscure sense in which the algorithm is to blame. And as you, I think, rightly put it, Cricket, there is a reasonable expectation that we have a type of audit or we test an algorithm before we release it in the wild and it actually does the work it's intended to do. You know, I sometimes like to say in the class, but more generally for any student who happens to be listening, in any class that you take at Stanford, there's an algorithm at work in assigning your grade. Certain assignments are weighted one amount and different assignments another amount. Different faculty members have different ways of grading. Sometimes it's grading on a curve. Sometimes it's grading connected to some independent standard. Sometimes effort counts or et cetera, et cetera. There's just many different approaches. You could say that there's an algorithm. If the professor didn't publish the algorithm of the grading standard, and so it was a complete mystery to students how they were going to get the grade, students would fairly object that there was something problematic with not understanding how it was that the grading algorithm would work. And they would be reasonably entitled to some understanding of what that is, just as would be the case if an algorithm was deployed in this vaccination distribution scenario you're describing at the Stanford Hospital. And to follow up again, I think Rob has framed the point extremely well in that notion that an algorithm oftentimes encodes some sort of criteria. And the real question for us is what is the criteria and how do we evaluate it both a priori when we think about what criteria we want an algorithm to try to optimize and then ex post facto, where we look at what it's doing through some sort of audit process to try to provide accountability and say, does this actually match our notion of what we actually want under some criteria? So I think the Stanford vaccine case was a place where people could see, you know, after the fact, what were the results and say, that's not something we wanted and go back and change the algorithm. One of the interesting questions that brings up is when you do that, you have to re-examine what were the values and the criteria on which the algorithm was initially based. And so if you didn't like the results from it and you felt that the results needed to be changed, what that really indicates is perhaps you had the wrong importance of values when you actually constructed the algorithm. And that's an important thing to re-examine because new algorithms are gonna get created in the future and one needs to understand on what values they should be based. And it can give you a simple example with, say, air travel, right? Sometimes, you know, people will book a ticket on air travel and they'll notice that their trip from, say, you know, Los Angeles to the Bay Area has a layover in Chicago. And it seems like that's just absurd. Well, what that encodes in the algorithm is a value of trying to minimize price as opposed to, say, minimize environmental impact. If we don't like that, we might be inconvenienced by the length of the trip but we also need to think about what are the real values we're coding when we make that decision as opposed to say, we want to prioritize what the impact on the environment might be. Do either of you think then that there are situations in which it's just kind of ridiculous to employ algorithms? Well, I think there are some situations in which we should be resistant to allowing algorithms to be the final and authoritative decision-making element in some scenarios. There might be cases where we always want a human in the loop of the decision-making. 
even if it's supplemented by or assisted by an algorithmic output or a score or a decision of some kind. The classic example for this might be military weapons or drones, which have the capacity to identify targets and to deliver some type of lethal weapon that would, would kill individuals. Do we want to allow automated systems or an algorithmic model to be the decision-making element alone? We might always wish, I would argue, we should always wish to have a human in the loop of that decision-making process. That's a long-winded way, Cricket, of saying, yes, I think there are places where we want to resist the introduction of algorithms if we think that algorithms should be the authoritative final decision-making element in any decision. And to add to that, part of it is also whether or not the algorithm has sufficient information about the nuances of the world to make decisions that are applicable in all situations. And it's something sometimes we use the phrase representational adequacy to refer to. And to give you an example, say from the criminal justice system, there might be some attributes of a defendant in the criminal justice system that are easy to measure and input into an algorithm. There might be other things that are not really measurable or never get input into the algorithm that has to do with the person's personal history or other factors that have to deal with the particular situation that they're dealing with. For example, did they were they involved in a theft because they were stealing food because their family's starving? Those are places where we might actually want a human element to be able to understand the circumstances at a level that we just can't encode in a meaningful way into an algorithm. There's places like that where it's not only, we might want to decide there's no algorithm to be used at all, or we might want to decide that the algorithm, as Rob is saying, is just providing input into a process that ultimately has a human arbiter. One thing we were talking about in class is that algorithms still exhibit racial and gender biases. For example, the Amazon algorithm that was putting forth fewer female candidates than male candidates, and also the recidivism algorithm that was exhibiting more bias toward Black people who were potential candidates for repeated crimes. These are both biases that humans exhibit, and given that we don't necessarily understand how those biases work among humans, is it a good idea to implement algorithms that show the same biases, and how can we eliminate these biases from algorithms? I think part of the issue there is thinking about algorithms that are machine learning algorithms that are trained on data. And so that historical data does encode a bunch of biases of the decisions that have been made by people historically. The benefits that we get, I mean, there's obviously promise and peril, but one of the promises we get is that now we can look at this data through the lens of an algorithm and understand are there places where it is being biased and try to tease apart based on what's happening in the data or things, trends that we sort of see in the world, what might be the sources for this bias and how do we try to do something through the algorithm or through sampling different kinds of data to mitigate for that bias. So it at least allows us to take a slightly more objective view toward some of the biases that are otherwise the, the human is exhibiting. It's hard to open up a human being in their brain and see what's actually going on in terms of bias. The flip side of that, though, is it has the potential to take these biases that exist and encode them in something that looks objective. So someone says, oh, the algorithm is just making this decision, when in fact the algorithm is just a mirror to the biases that existed in the world previously. 
And the real question for us is, do we just want to mirror what's happened in the world, even when we now have a mechanism to understand better that it might be biased? Or how do we find ways of trying to mitigate it once we understand more of what the problems are? One of the benefits from my perspective of planning this class together with Maron and Jeremy and then teaching it for the past couple of years is that I feel like I have a much finer grained understanding now of where it is that algorithmic models can go wrong. Before this class, I could tell you lots of different things about fairness and bias and anti-discrimination and theories of justice, but I couldn't have mapped it on very well to how it is that algorithms can produce such negative outcomes or help to facilitate good outcomes like justice. So let me give a concrete answer to your question, Cricket, about you know, how can we identify and to try to eliminate various forms of bias that algorithms might exhibit. And it seems to me we have to attend to, at a minimum, three different places within the development and operation or deployment of algorithms. The first is the choice of the training data. And if it turns out that our training data is riddled with human bias, the algorithm, of course, will just pick up now and amplify that human bias, even though you might not want the algorithmic model itself to do that. As someone put it two years ago, Algorithms are nothing more than an encoding of the past. And if we're encoding the past of human bias riddled judgments, the algorithms, of course, just pick that up. The second place it could happen is that the algorithm itself, the model, might encase some type of biased or discriminatory judgment. The weights that are attached to various characteristics of people might exhibit a type of bias against certain types of groups that would produce, even if we had a good training set of data, a biased outcome. Third, you could even have, when the model is working well, worrisome differential outcomes in how the model treats different groups. So there are classic examples now by a bunch of Black AI scientists to show how facial recognition tools can produce biased outcomes in their identification of faces and face prints, sometimes because of background human bias, but sometimes because if you train a data set, a facial recognition tool on the data set, which just has more white faces, the inferential power of the machine learning model to identify with greater accuracy white faces and identify with less accuracy black faces partly because there are just many fewer instances of black faces in the training set, will lead to a differential accuracy score of identifications. And then if you were to deploy that facial recognition model in a police department for identifications, the false positives that would arise for black citizens would just be much higher because the accuracy rate is lower. That's at least three different places where bias and discrimination can come in. And I venture to say there are others as well. This is for me a lesson in why a collaboration between people in computer science and people with ethical or philosophical training, as well as social scientific training, is one important path forward here. Philosophers should not have special expertise to talk about fairness and algorithms, and neither should computer scientists have definitive expertise in that. It will require a kind of multidisciplinary collaboration that we think the entire course represents. We were also talking at one point about how it might be good to have some sort of governmental system for implementing and designing algorithms. How would that kind of branch be structured? Someone in the Zoom chat was saying that we would need to have a lot of computer scientists, which I agree with, but I think this conversation has led to my thought that it would be necessary to have people from other disciplines as well. Just to populate the imagination with this, 
think about the world of biomedical research and how it is that there's oversight of the pharmaceutical industry or of healthcare and provision, we have one major government agency, the Food and Drug Administration, which regulates how it is that drug trials work, what's necessary before a drug can be brought to market, how it is that right now the vaccine, as we talked about earlier, can be distributed. These aren't decisions of private entities or, or of researchers um, at universities. This is a, an infrastructure that's developed over the course of decades to ensure the balance of interests in society and to protect human subjects. There's no equivalent of a federal agency with the task of thinking about the work of computer scientists. It's fractured across lots of different agencies with no centralized expertise. My own hope is that in the not too distant future, we will see some new regulatory or policy experiments where people with the technical training of a CS degree at Stanford decide that their career prospects are as interesting, if not more interesting, to go into policy work or government work, at least for a portion of their career, because just as you said, Cricket, that will be necessary, along with lots of other kinds of expertise to make sure agency like that gets off the ground in a, in a good way. It's instructive to look at something like a vaccine trial where it happens in multiple stages, because you have the initial stages where scientists are just trying to see whether or not they can actually produce something that they think works. And the very initial stages are just, can human beings even tolerate this kind of drug? And then slightly larger scale experiments, and then very large scale experiments where really to understand the results of those experiments, you need epidemiologists to be able to deconstruct what's the impact and is the experimental design correct. In the same way, computer scientists need to be involved in terms of examining the algorithm itself and understanding things like how data was sampled and are there initial biases that they can tease out by doing various kinds of statistical measures. But then there's also social scientists who need to be involved to actually measure what is the impact of these algorithms in deployment and monitor them over time because it's something that it's not one and done. It's something that needs to constantly be monitored like many other things that happen now where we try to understand like the discriminatory impact of policies. When computer science and algorithms start to become more of something that is discussed in public policy, wouldn't it be good for legislators and other government officials to be more literate in computer science? I have a very short answer to that, which is, of course, it would be good for our representatives to be far more technically literate. But that's not the only approach. We can just have lots of people who act as expert advisors or expert inputs into policymaking processes. Our current legislators aren't especially literate on climate science, and yet we have really highly qualified people working in the Environmental Protection Agency or in other, other branches of the government who do have that expertise. We don't need to pin all of our hopes on well-educated legislators. But we do need to look to a diversity of talent within the agencies that populate the federal government and state government as well. Rob is exactly right on that, is you just need to bring in the perspective of experts. You need to provide a structure for them to be able to do their work with credibility. So what are the structures that could be created where you have an oversight body that is responsible for actually the task of being able to evaluate algorithms over time and be able to render judgments or render information to policymakers to update as time goes on. For what it's worth, President Obama did actually write his first few lines of code when he was in office. So sometimes you can even get people to go back and learn something even after they're pretty far along in their career. Uh, 
program organized through code.org where they were trying to just expand K through 12 CS education. And as one of the events they did, they had a group come to the White House of Children to learn how to write little bits of code. And Obama was there and actually wrote his first few lines of code in that setting. That is super cool. I think that technical education should definitely begin from a young age, but there is a theory among some parents that that's not a good idea because then children can get into all kinds of mischief that maybe they're not old enough for or ready enough to understand. How do you think computer science education should be structured then? Well, as a parent, I can tell you that children will get in all kinds of mischief no matter what they're actually studying. I'm not too worried about that. What I am actually worried about more is the equity issue that computing, because it involves some level of infrastructure and is a relatively new field compared to, say, mathematics or English, many schools just don't have the resources to offer computer science classes, whether that be infrastructure like computers or teaching talent, people with that skill, because it turns out people with computing skills are in pretty high demand in other job sectors that are more lucrative than teaching. I think if you really want to get more technical literacy, which I think we need, there needs to be a much greater investment at both the state and federal level in terms of K through 12 education. And we're beginning to see the wheels of that actually turn. There was an effort in California, which just got started a few years back, that the governor appointed a panel of people to provide recommendations around creating state standards for computer science education, and then recommendations from a policy standpoint for what would be needed to make that happen. And in Gavin Newsom's budget last year, first allocation, which was relatively modest as far as these budgets go, was on the order of around $15, $16 million. It's going to take a lot more than that to educate all 6 million California school kids about computer science education. But it's a start and directionally, it's kind of moving in the right way. And we're seeing a lot of other states do that as well. Looking to the future then, what do you think will be the greatest ethics-related technology issue that we'll be encountering in the next decade or so? I think the power of artificial intelligence, which is generated by advances at the frontier of artificial intelligence by researchers at universities, coupled with the extraordinary increase in computing power and then absolutely enormous pools of data will yield increasingly powerful machine learning models, which we should see proliferate across society. For me, the most important ethical question in the next decade is how much human agency and individual experience will we want to give over to machines to make decisions on our behalf? It's not that any one particular thing is worrisome in and of itself, but the slow accumulation of things that we hand off to machines and then to realize what has become of human agency itself as computers and machines become ever more intelligent themselves. One of the things that's always interesting about a question to predict the future is there's lots of ways you can go wrong. And, and I'm glad Rob answered first because we're actually, I think, in extreme alignment on this. I do think AI is going to raise some of the most profound ethical questions for us in the next decade. The big ones being what decisions are we willing to have machines make for us and how much control do we see to those machines in the long run. And part of that is related to what kind of oversight we provide for machines, what we think of the relationship that's going to be evolving between what humans do and what machines do. Over time, the way that we not only view 
machines, but the way we view ourselves is likely to change. If you kind of think of major revolutions in science, where at some point we realized we were no longer the center of the universe and we weren't the center of our solar system, then we realized there's lots of other animals that have different levels of intelligence as well. In some sense, over time, we've humanity's repeatedly been knocked off its pedestal. And one of the things that AI forces us to confront is just what are the things about humanity that we think are special? What are the things that are worth preserving? And what are some of the things right now that we might view as being important, but it turns out they're not actually as important as we think, or maybe machines can actually do them better. Well, thank you both so much for joining. That's about all the time we have for today. But are there any last thoughts that either of you would like to share? It's a truism for faculty like us to say things about how the future will be determined by young people. But I have to say that stereotype applies with great force in this particular case. The choices of what people who are 19 and 20 and 21 years old make about our ethical and technical future are going to matter an enormous deal. I want all the students at Stanford University to feel a sense of empowerment and agency over shaping that future rather than thinking it's something they'll just be subject to by the decisions of people who work in companies or in governments. The last thought I'll offer is just a big plug for thinking that the decisions that people make at Stanford are going to make a big difference in the future and to embrace the agency that comes along with it. And to add to that, I think one of the things we've touched on multiple times is the notion of bringing together a set of skills to be able to make those decisions that no one group of people has a monopoly on the future. And the way we'll sort of get some of the best outcomes is by having a diversity of opinions in the room that are shaping both the technologies and the policies and the ways we view ourselves and our society. And the more students who are in their educational process right now can think about informing themselves in those different facets will become critical to the kinds of solutions we find in the future. And if anyone doubts that what Rob said about young people changing the future, all you need to do is realize that the most most of the conversation we're having now is about technologies that were developed by people who were 19 and 20 and 21 and now have profoundly changed our world and are, we're dealing with the repercussions now. It's clear that that's happened before and it will continue to happen. Those were Professors Rob Reich and Maron Sahami, and I would like to thank them one more time for joining us today. They teach with Professor Jeremy Weinstein in winter quarter in a class called Ethics, Public Policy, and Technological Change. And while this was not intended to be an infomercial, you may be interested anyway. This has been another episode of All Students of Stanford Unite, the official podcast of the Associated Students of Stanford University and Stanford Student Enterprises. I'm your host, Cricket Vidalman. Have a great day.